Seor. I'm James, if you've not met before. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, I'm going to have a look at a passage in Mark 3. In fact, I'm sure Rod was in Mark 3 last week, so I'm, just, I'm actually following on from the passage that Rod preached from. Uh, last week, we're in a series called Discover Life. I uh, spoke a couple of weeks ago about how um, we're looking at what our aim is as a church, what, what Jesus has called us to do and to be. And we're working our way through that at the moment. And then we're going to look at what it means to be committed to the church. What does it mean to look like to commit to, to Jesus and to um, the mission that he's given us as a people? And uh, we talked about how we're going to be changing our name come January to Life Church Beckles. Um, we've obviously shared a lot in the past about moving to a new building in the centre of town, which we're going to call uh, The Hive. And we're working our way through a series reminding us really of what Jesus has called us to as a people, what our aim is, what he tells us that we're about. Just to recommend some books before we get into the passage, because um, I haven't done so for a while. Um, this is one that you might have seen that we're recommending um, with the series that we're doing in house groups. It's called What on Earth is the Church For? by David Devonish. It's a really, really good book, down to earth, very practical explanation of what scripture, what Jesus tells us the church is for what's our purpose and what's our aim in life. So I can highly recommend that. Um, this is Relational Mission, A Way of Life. It's Mike Betts who came to speak to us a few weeks ago. He kind of outlines what some of our key values are as family churches, one the things that we have in common. Um, and a lot of what he's, he says in the first chapter I'm speaking about this morning. I've recommended this multiple times, but I have no fears about recommending it again. This is The Spirit-Filled Church by Terry Virgo. Just if you want to understand what church is about, there's uh, no better book than that. It's really a fantastic read. If you want to go a little bit further back in time, last one, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Life Together. It's a really fantastic read, especially when it comes to what concrete life together looks like, relationship on relationship, you know, the the nitty-gritty of how we understand the gospel in light of loving one another as family and what it means to live life together as the church, which is what I'm speaking about uh, today. And we're working our way... Alex, do you mind popping the PowerPoint up for me? Uh, we're working our way through our aim um, to make disciples of Jesus who live to get life together as church family, uh, which is the bit that I'm focusing on this morning. And then we talked about uh, living in friendship learning to be like Jesus and to live like Jesus and loving God with worship and service and beckles and beyond with words, works and wonders. And so today we're looking at life together as church family. I really need to make that bigger, don't I? I'll try and remember for next time. A family has traditionally been the kind of building blocks of society, hasn't it? But it's becoming uh, less and less uh, the case as, as a report recently um, by the Children's Commissioner has shown. In it, she tells us that 23% of UK families are headed by a single parent of whom 90% are women, compared with an EU average of 13%. It says in the report that 44%, 44% of under-21s have not lived with both their parents during childhood. Um, says in the report, having a stable and supportive family, whatever form that takes, 
can determine a child's future success. Children with happy families do better in their exams, go on to get better jobs, and have higher hourly income at the age of 25. Family can insulate us from life's adversity and challenges. Um, not that all of those things are the most important things in life, but you can acknowledge the point that she's making in the report. One organisation says this, the report clearly shows that children of separated parents are more likely to be disadvantaged across a range of outcomes, including emotional well-being and education. But, and this is crucial, the impact of parental separation depended on the level of parental conflict. Family is important, isn't it? And the statistics kind of show that. that it's increasingly, um, people are growing up without a strong uh, sense of family. And in, I mean, not all um, children who aren't in nuclear families are not going to flourish. You know, we understand that, don't we? You can be a child of a single parent and flourish and grow and have a, a great childhood and um, go on to have a great future. But I think what it's saying is, is that where there's not a strong sense of family, that can negatively impact many children's future lives and um, in a negative way. And perhaps that was your experience growing up. Perhaps you had negative experiences of family life, or perhaps you've had a really positive experience of what family is like. And as we think about church as family, that's the background, cultural background that we're living with isn't it, that family life's becoming um, more difficult and not necessarily always a positive thing for people. I wonder what comes to mind for you when you think about family. Do you think, does it bring about happy memories, positive experiences? Is it something quite difficult to think about? Perhaps mixed emotions, maybe a sense of, of loss. I wonder what it conjures up for you. Maybe it's something you feel like you've never quite experienced. Like family isn't something that's kind of been part of your history particularly. Well, today we're going to not look at our human ideas of what family is, but we're going to look at what Jesus says about it. We're going to look at what Jesus says about family. I wonder how you would answer the question, what is the church? What is the church? The passage today is going to reveal that Jesus says we're a family. We are family. I've got all my sisters with me. No, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that. But <laughs> it's going to be in your head for the rest of the morning. <laughs> Come on, everybody, sing. We could start Sundays like that, couldn't you? In fact, we did actually sing a song that was along those lines, didn't you? Second song in. We are your church. We are your sons and daughters. Yeah, we're your family. Great. Should we have a look at the passage together? Um, we're in chapter 3, starting at verse 20. Um, earlier in the chapter, Jesus has healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and as a result, some want to destroy him, uh, ruin him. He goes on to continue healing people, casting out spirits. And then we get to the passage that Rod um, took us through last week, which is all about Jesus calling his disciples uh, to him. And then we get this in verse 20. Then he went home. Then he went home. This passage is set in Jesus' home. I wonder if you've ever wondered what Jesus' home life was like. Today we're going to get a little window into it. 
Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they couldn't even eat. Obviously, that's normally what they would have done. Jesus had the crowd over. They ate together. Too many people this time couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. They're worried for him. It's an unusual scene, isn't it? You think about it. Usually, you kind of have family on the, uh, you have the family on the inside, don't you? And the crowd on the outside. That's kind of normal way homes work, isn't it? Jesus' home is a little bit different. The crowd's on the inside. And his family's on the outside. It's a bit of a different dynamic. His family are concerned for him. They want to kind of bring him to his senses. There's threats against his life. They're worried about him. He's in danger. They're concerned for him. And they want to do something about it. And then uh, verses 22 to 30, the religious leaders are accusing him. You've got an evil spirit, they tell him. And Jesus kind of exposes the logic of their argument. And then it says this in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're seeking you. They're looking for you. I wonder what you think Jesus should say in this moment. Maybe something like, I'll be there in a minute. Just give me a minute. Just finish up here. And then I'll, I'll go and talk to them. Um, I wonder what you think he should say. I'm just a bit busy at the minute. And this is how he answered them. Who are my mother and my brothers? You wonder why Jesus asked that question. Why does he ask that question? Is he just being rude? Because it appears that way, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit rude. Is he just being a little bit difficult? A bit awkward? Has he forgotten? <laughs> Who are they? <laughs> no, I don't think He's not asking the question because he lacks information, does he? He's asking the question because he's provoking the crowd that are around him to think. He's provoking us to think. And he isn't saying that family life isn't important. He's not saying your blood brothers and sisters and mother fathers aren't important. He's not saying better, uh, stronger families wouldn't be better for society. No, he cares deeply for his family. But what Jesus is saying is that there's something more. He is saying there's something more. He asks not because he lacks information, but to get the attention of the crowd and to get them to think. And then it says, verse 34, And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Here are my mother and brothers first point I just want to pull out of the passage is this, that church is a family who live life together for Jesus. I was reading the story of a Muslim man recently in a Muslim nation, um, and he said this, I gave up everything, I gave up everything, including my family for Christ. He's ostracized, outcast from his family, lost completely everything, jobs, families, friends, just rejected from society at large. I gave up everything, including my family, for Christ. And all I got in return was meetings. All I got in return was meetings. 
I read this story from a church, church pastor. He says this. A while back, a former gang member came to our church. He was heavily tattooed and rough around the edges, but he was curious to see what church was like. He had a relationship with Jesus and seemed to get fairly involved with the church. After a few months, I found out the guy was no longer coming to the church. Uh, when, I asked, when asked why he didn't come anymore, he gave the following explanation. He said this. I had the wrong idea about what the church was going to be like. When I joined the church, I thought it was going to be like joining a gang. You see, in gangs, we weren't just nice to each other once a week. We were family. And the pastor writes, that killed me. Because I knew what he expected is what the church is intended to be. And it saddened me to think that a gang could paint a better picture of commitment, of loyalty, and family than the local church body. There are lots of pictures in the Bible of, of church, aren't there? The church is pictured not just as a family, but also um, as a, a body, as a bride, as a temple, a vineyard, a building. But the overarching picture throughout the whole of Scripture is one of family. It's the foundational one. And Jesus said in verse 34, Here are my brothers and sisters and my mother. His church, his idea of church is family, not meetings. And at the foot of the cross, where we gather as a church family and live life together as disciples of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, Jesus tells us that we're family. Do you remember that passage in uh, the Gospel of John? Jesus is on the cross, and it says at the foot of the cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Lots of Marys around. Three of them, in fact. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John's going, oh, me, uh, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple, John, took her into his own home. That's what Jesus, at the foot of the cross, that's what we become to one another is family, brothers and sisters, spiritual fathers and mothers to one another. One writer says, at the foot of the cross, there is the creating and forging of a new family, a new community, a new humanity, the church. And we're going to break bread later. And that's what we're doing when we break bread. We're gathering together as church family at the foot of the cross, aren't we? We're remembering what Jesus has done on the cross for us. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. And we share it together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Eating the bread and drinking the wine together as family. That's how breaking a bread is meant to be. It's together. It's our family meal. It's doing it with one another as brothers and sisters. I don't know what your experience of breaking bread or communion might have been growing up. I grew up in an Anglican church. It was a great church in many ways. But one of the difficult things was the experience of communion. We would come out of the pews, line up in a single file when the usher had ushered us out into the aisle. Everything was stone silence. You stood in the, the aisle alone. You walked up to the person who'd been given the bread and wine from the priest or the vicar, handed it down to them, and they could hand it to me. And you'd walk up and receive it, take it from them, take it yourself, encourage us kind of silently and introspectively, think, confess your sins to the Lord, and then you'd be reminded of his forgiveness once you had done it. But actually, 
that is quite a, an individualistic way to do breaking of bread, isn't it? That's an odd way to do a family meal. It's something we do together in relationship with each other, encouraging one another, praying for one another, sharing life together. And it's only a moment when we do it at the end of a meeting, but it's a great opportunity for us to express what church family looks like with each other, isn't it? To be doing it together. It doesn't have to be silent. You talk to one another. You do it together as family. Because we live our life together as a family centered upon Jesus and his work for us on the cross. And everything flows from there, doesn't it? Jesus' life lived for us. His death died in our place. His resurrection to life for us and his ascension. That kind of flows through us, doesn't it? Into our lives. That's the foundation of our life. We live from that place. At the cross, Jesus draws you and I together and says, this is your brother, this is your sister. And as we come to break bread, we remind ourselves, you're my brother, you're my sister. Jesus has drawn us together as family. And Jesus teaches us to pray, doesn't he? How does he start off? Our Father. That's how we pray whenever we pray together. Our Father. We've all got the same relationship with our Heavenly Father. Jesus says that we're all born of the Spirit. All of us have been made alive together in Christ. It says this in Romans 8. So then, brothers, all who are led by the Spirit are sons or daughters of God. Sons of God. You've received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. That's the Spirit's work in us. It's to remind us, you're a child of God. That's your fundamental identity. You've been welcomed into his family, adopted into the family because of what Jesus has done for you. And now together we all cry, Abba, Father, our Father. And that's how we pray together. It's our fundamental identity as the church. Perhaps we might find it difficult sometimes for that to be how we fundamentally experience and approach church life. It can be difficult, can't it, to get into a sense of relationship with each other where you feel at ease with one another, you know, where you know, perfection isn't the deal. It's okay to be imperfect around one another. It's okay to get things wrong, muck up, share a contribution that you bumbled over, or whatever it might be. Be in one another's homes and feel like you don't have to have a mask on or behave yourself, behave how you think Christians should behave. Perhaps you struggle to spend time at length with people. Maybe you find it easy to kind of nip in just before 10 a.m. and then disappear off quickly at the end because that's easier. Perhaps you find it difficult to establish friendships here where you can genuinely talk about serious life issues with people open up to them and be vulnerable with them share what's on your heart and know that they're they are for you perhaps just feeling like you're on handshake terms with people nice to nice to see you holy spirit we want to say come and help us lord come and help us if we feel that way around one another holy spirit you're the one who helps us understand that we're children of god witnesses to us, tells us we belong to you, we belong here, we're part of the family. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be at ease with one another, for our relationships to be defined in that way.
Amen. Amen. Uh, I was meeting recently. Remember Mike Bollinger who came and brought some prophetic words back from Lowestoft Community Church? I was out for dinner with him and Toby the other day when I was in London for prayer and fasting. And uh, what I found out about Mike is, which I didn't realize, is he's an expert in this family tree software. Um, and one of the things that he's asked to do from time to time is to solve family tree puzzles so that long-lost family members can be reintroduced to one another. You might have seen that there's a TV program based on that, isn't there? That Davina McCall and Nikki Campbell used to, or maybe still do, host called Long Lost Family, I think it's called. And what happens when those two long-lost family members meet each other for the first time? What do they do? They embrace, don't they? Oh, this is my family. This is, this is my, my flesh and blood. I never knew that this person was part of my family, and they embrace. Um, I don't know about you, but when I meet strangers, the first thing I tend to do is not, hey, lovely to meet you. <laughs> That's a bit strong. There's something about family that brings a connection that is just not achievable in any other way. And so it's to be amongst the family of God if it's our fundamental identity is a warmth straight off the bat with one another. The family connection is a strong one. The second thing in the passage is this. Church is a diverse family where everyone is welcome. I said, you ever wondered what Jesus' home is like? Well, it's like this. He went home and a crowd gathered again. So the crowd gathered again. He's always got a crowd round so they could not even eat this time, i.e. they normally ate with him in his home. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him. This is the dynamic of Jesus gathering people. He gathers people from different places, different backgrounds, different personalities, different life experiences, different perspectives on life, and he gathers them all to himself. That's what Jesus is like. He gathers a crowd of very different, diverse people to himself. And the connection that they have with one another, this crowd that are in his home, is what? Their relationship to him. And that's the case with us as a church, isn't it? The only reason, really, that you're sat next to the people that are around you is because of Jesus. Otherwise, you just wouldn't probably have anything to do with them, naturally, in the flesh. There probably would be no reason, wouldn't there? This is what Jesus does. He gathers a diverse people around him. It's a bond that goes beyond the differences of the flesh. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. Remember that passage? Or it might say in your version, compels us. I.e., the love of Jesus for me supernaturally is the thing which kind of controls my behavior, compels me to behave like this to this person, this to this person. Because naturally, in the flesh, I'd go, (laughs) the love of Christ eventually compels me to go, and love the person. That's what Paul, I mean, that's how I'm interpreting, he says it anyway. Because... Why do we behave like that, Paul? Because we've concluded this, that one, Jesus, has died for all. And they all have died. Therefore, all have died. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Because of Jesus' work, because of his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, and his love at work in us, the next verse says this. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. From now on, therefore, we regard no one, 
no one according to the flesh. I read that the other day and I went, Poor. That's a really big statement. No one according to the flesh. Therefore, is anyone in Christ? He's a new creation, he says. Paul's saying, because of what Jesus has done for us all in dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. What he means is, we don't regard them according to where they live or where they're from. We don't regard them on the basis of the color of their skin or their sex or their educational qualifications or their job or their family background or their upbringing or their church background or their financial status, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're young or old, their social standing, their achievements, their abilities. We regard no one according to the flesh. And maybe if you've been a Christian for some time, you experience this, is that you can go to another country, somebody who's completely different to you in every way, and strike up this wonderful friendship and warmth from the off. It's amazing. I remember going to Romania for the first, my first trip ever abroad. I went on a mission trip with my church. Um, and we did uh, work on a Romanian orphanage um, that was uh, reintegrating young men into society. And the warmth of the family there that hosted us really struck me. I went to Uganda when my gap years, I lived there for a year. Just, I've got some wonderful friends I still know. This is how many years later? I don't know, 18 years, 19 years later. Still, general, you know, warmth and a, a wonderful friendship with people who are very different from me. Because Jesus welcomes in the crowd, no matter who you are. That's what Jesus' home is like, his family is like. Welcomes them in, no matter who they are. But it's easy, isn't it, to exclude ourselves in some way from the family. To kind of feel outcast, feel rejected, feel like we don't belong, feel like we're just kind of a bit of a square peg in a round hole. That's what it says, isn't it? Just not quite feeling like we fit in. Um, and we can end up affirming those fears in one another. I'll come here, I feel like that too. Join me. We'll be okay. We'll be the ones who don't quite fit in here hang out with me. But that's not the gospel truth. That isn't what the gospel says at all. Jesus invites all in. And if you trust him and follow him, you're part of the family. He says, you're part of my family. So we need to constantly remind one another of the truth. It doesn't matter if you're not like me, or you're not like them, or you're not like so-and-so. You're part of the family. Jesus has welcomed you in. His work on the cross has achieved everything you need to be adopted and part of the family. And Jesus, look at this, Jesus is not embarrassed or ashamed of you. I wonder if you've got in your natural family somebody who's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> you've got a person who's, you're, you're lots of you smiling because somebody immediately jumps to mind. You think, that person, oh. And if you're ever out in public or you're around others, it's a cringy kind of, oh, you're talking loudly at the dinner table in a restaurant. It's, oh, so sorry. Should I go over and apologize or should I not? You know, embarrassing. Jesus never has a moment like that with you. It says in Hebrews 2, verse 11, he is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother, his sister. 
Jesus knows the worst about you and I, doesn't he? He knows us warts and all. He knows the things we're most ashamed of about ourselves. But he's not ashamed to call us family. That means with Jesus, you don't have to prove your worth. That means with us here in the church, you don't have to prove your worth. You don't have to hide reality. You don't have to be something you're not. You don't have to earn acceptance. Your family membership is not based on your upbringing. It's not based on your moral performance or your church attendance or your Bible knowledge. It's not whether you're from a Christian family or not. It's not based on your prayer life or your education. It's not based on whether you're rich or whether you're poor. It's not based on your social standing out there in the world. It's not based on the number of Twitter followers you have. It's not based on your Facebook friends. It's not based on your Insta likes. No matter how you feel about yourself, whatever your abilities, your intellect, Jesus calls you his brother. Jesus calls you his sister. And he's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. He's welcomed you in, and he's glad you're here. And so are we if we love one another. Amen? Where did I get to? The things that we're ashamed of, it's not like Jesus is ignoring them. He's not oblivious to them. In fact, he knows them even better than we do, because he understands exactly how bad we can be and have been. But if we've trusted Jesus and asked him for forgiveness, he says, I forgive you. And that's what connects us as family, isn't it? We've all messed up. We all don't live, we've all been sinners. But Jesus has welcomed us into the family, called us saints, said you're part of my family. And he says, I forgive you. And at the, f- at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. We're all, we've all been sinners. We're all now saints. We've all been forgiven. And we're all grateful. And we're all family celebrating it together, eating the bread and drinking the wine together. That should actually be the atmosphere of our breaking bread to one another. Gratitude to God for that. So Lord, we pray you would help us know that truth. That you call us family, you're not ashamed of us, we're welcome here. I don't know about you, but this is a great challenge to me. It challenges my sense of materialism. Because this is now, this is my family. The things that I have, I want to share with others when they're in need challenges my individualism sounds like it's me on my own I'm, yeah, every man's an island all that kind of stuff you know, my home is my castle etc no it's not it's not and actually I'm interdependent on others like lockdown perhaps made us realise that even more we really do need other people I depend on you I depend on you in Christ I cannot live life in Christ without you. And you can't live it without me. (laughs) Just before I put myself down too much. It challenges my prejudices. Helps me accept people, regardless of the fleshly differences we might have. It challenges my selfishness. Challenges me to be more selfless, to think of the others in my family. Final thing. Church is a family with distinctive features. There's defining features sometimes that run through families, isn't there? We were talking this uh, over uh, lunch, uh, I think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, with Nigel and Cheryl. 
So I always tease Jess about she's got the distinctive man family feature, which I'm going to say now, and you'll notice when you're talking to Nigel, because it runs in from Nigel through the family. Jess has got it. <laughs> her sister, Liana, and her brother, Tim. They all got the, the man tongue. It sits at the front of their mouth when they're talking. And you'll know, you're, now I've said it, you'll be watching. You'll be like, no, when he's talking, you won't be listening to what he says, you'll just watch it, he's got the tongue thing. It's a, it's a, it's a distinctive family feature. And when uh, Jess is concentrating, she does this. And I know when she's concentrating, she's got a tongue. Um, and guess who does that? Florence. I caught Florence the other day. She's like this, in front of the TV. Oh, she's got the man tongue. I've got the Drummond nose. All my brothers have got it. Slightly elongated. Handsome looking thing. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew, for the laugh. Yeah, my brothers have got it, and the hairline as well. It's all down my mum's side, Drummond side. There's obviously the Wilson good looks as well. Um, they're wrong on that side. Um, that was meant to be a joke. But obviously, you all just do you think I've got good looks, which is nice. Very encouraging. Thank you. I wonder what the defining feature of your family is. The defining family feature of Jesus' family. I wonder what that is. What's the defining feature of the family of God, of the church? Jesus says this in verse 35. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and mother. In the parallel passage in Luke 11:27, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is what Jesus did himself, isn't it? Jesus said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And brothers and sisters are those who do the same, aren't they? Listen to what our Father says and, and we do it. We can part the family business. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. That's the defining feature of family, not paying him lip service, but doing his word, acting on it, living it out. So you might be thinking, what's the will of, what's the will of God then? I'll just make sure I'm doing it. What's the will of God? I'm just going to mention two things briefly because I'm starting to stray into some of the stuff that we might do in future weeks. But briefly, the first one's this. Look to Jesus. The will of God is to look to Jesus. John 6 verse 40 says this, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. We're to be church family who live life together, looking together to Jesus. That's why when we start our meetings, we try to start with worship and get there quickly. We don't want to do notices beforehand because we want to look to Jesus. We've had all week to look to other things. And we want to be reminded every week, let's look to Jesus. Every gathering we have when we're together as parents, look to Jesus first. Whenever you're together with a team or serving with people or around somebody, look to Jesus. We want to look to him. One writer says, doing God's will starts with trusting God's work, trusting what Jesus has done for us. Food and drink sustains us, doesn't it? Nourishes us. It strengthens us, gives us life and energy. And when we break bread together and eat bread and drink wine, we're saying, Jesus, we're part of your family. Our life depends on you. Our life together depends on you. You're the one who sustains us. You're the one who strengthens us. You're the one who nourishes us and gives us life and energy. Second thing, we look to Jesus, first thing. Second thing, we live for Jesus. We live for Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 5.15 that I read earlier, he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake. To live for Jesus. We live life together as a family for Jesus, not with our own agenda, but we surrender our agendas to him and live for him. Our purpose is to live for him by loving one another. And some of the purpose that we're, you know, will come out later in the series, the purpose that God has for us. And I'll talk a bit more about loving one another uh, next week. I wonder, oh. <laughs> um, have you ever done that? You know when you're doing online shopping with whichever organization you might be online shopping with? Um, you know, sometimes a star rating, isn't there? And there's a series of reviews. I don't know about you, but I've got quite into the reviews if I happen to be buying anything off a certain app. Because I s- started to trust them. started to think, well, if 2,500 people have generally rated this product like this, then I can kind of trust what they say about it. And I wonder what Jesus would say about us as a church family. What would his review of us be? And I think Jesus would want to say this is the church is a family who love one another. Church is a family who love one another. How do we live life together for Jesus as a church family and friendship? Well, we We do it in house groups, don't we? As part of one of the ways that we do it, smaller expressions of our family life. They're not meetings, but they're people that we live life with. Um, And we do uh, what the Bible calls one-anothering. There's tons and tons of verses about one-anothering. I've got some of them here. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Build one another up. Be like-minded towards one another, accept one another, admonish one another, greet one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another, speak the truth in love, be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interests of one another. Bear with one another, teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, stir up one another to love and good works, show hospitality to one another, employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, pray for one another, confess your faults to one another. There's a lot of them in there. And that's the... That's the dynamic of living life together and loving one another. And uh, next week, hopefully, I'll, t- I'll talk a bit more about that. I'm just coming to land now. I was reading, uh, reminded of a story from 2017. You might have read it in the news. Really horrific story of a shooting in a Texas church in 2017. It was about five years ago. And um, one of the ladies who's um, uh, the wife of the pastor of the church said this at the time. Our church was not comprised of members or parishioners. We were a very close family. We ate together, we laughed together, we cried together, and we worshipped together. And now most of our church family is gone. That's how they thought of one another as family. And I think over the most treasured memories 
of life in church when I was back at King's, their experiences of being at home with others, often in their homes. I remember about Goth and Angie, the way that Goth calls Angie my treasure, my treasure. And I remember the, the dynamic of them making breakfast for Jess and I. I remember the way that Toby would say goodnight to his son Ethan and give him a kiss and a hug and spend some time with him even though he's in the middle of a meeting. He was always welcome to come in and say goodnight to his dad. I remember my friend Liz, who I led house group with for years. She's a, she was a single parent with a wonderful boy called Reuben, who's a good friend. And I remember the way she'd gently get down on his level and parent him and gently encourage him and correct him and discipline him. And a lot of my parenting comes from the way that Liz parented Reuben, seeing the way she did it in her home. I remember things like David and Linda having me over for dinner and Linda for, having me so long that Linda would fall asleep and I'd still be welcome to stay. Nobody would kick me out. I remember Mike and Kit having me over to watch films. I remember after Sundays, all those who were in their kind of 18 to 30s piling over to our house, grabbing a couple of those rotisserie chickens you get from Tesco's, you know that one, uh? yeah? And just and baguette after baguette and some salad if I remember. And we'd all pile around and just have, have meals together. And the place would be full. People would be like up against the wall and, you know, we're all crammed in. But it's family. And there's a point, isn't there, where you cross a line and you move from kind of being at a distance to one another to being in one another's homes, living life together, where love increases and where a sense of vulnerability notches up a bit and discipleship goes to another level. And it's great to study the Bible together with one another. But if we don't get to that point in our relationships with one another, that will actually bear a lot less fruit than if we cross the line and get into being family with each other. We're better off working hard to get to there than we are studying the Bible a lot on relationships that are thin and superficial. Because you won't receive things from one another in an atmosphere of love and grace. If we cross the line and get into being family with one another, discipleship will go to another level. And the stuff we say to one another when we're doing a Bible study or we're looking at scripture together will pack a punch and help us to grow in love together. Holy Spirit, we, we pray. Does the band want to come up? We'll worship in a second. Holy Spirit, we, we want to ask for your help in this. We thank you that you've, you've called us family we thank you that you've uh, welcomed us in. We thank you that you've said you're my brother, you're my sister. Thank you that we belong in your family. Help that to become a reality for us and help us to work it out practically in our lives together. We pray. Amen.